Hello everyone and welcome to Autism Stories. I'm your host Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. Recently, there's been lots of talk about the lack of autistic actors in film, and rightfully so. There certainly needs to be more autistic actors in Hollywood, and today we talk with Dennis Hammers about his experience as an actor in a film. Before we get to that, we will talk with Dennis about his job as an instructional designer and how he can help other autistic folks with his career. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Dennis, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. I wanted to start out um, like I do so often in with autism stories and learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? Wow, I could I think I could probably write a novel on that. <laughs> Literally, because of my age, you know, and I'm sure you're aware of this, and probably all of the autism community is aware of this. Back in the day, there was a really fine definition of what autism actually was, and it wasn't until I believe the DSM five where they where they changed that. Maybe the DSM four, but certainly the DSM five where they changed that and modified it to include a broader spectrum, which also encompasses Aspergers. And but prior to that, they didn't. So if you didn't fit the exact criteria. You weren't autistic. It was it was that simple. So so there was no high functioning, low functioning. It was either you had it or you didn't, or you had Aspergers, and that was pretty much how they did it. So I stumbled through my whole life, literally stumbled through, um, and it, it, it was to my detriment, to be honest with you. And it's not like the school systems and my parents didn't try. Everybody knew that there was something different and, and I, I, for lack of a better word, something wrong. But nobody could find out what it was. They gave me test after test. And so finally, I just, you know, learned to deal with it and I, I went on. And I tried to go to college in, in the early 80s and it was a complete disaster. And I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I also have a, a comorbidity of ADHD. And again, that wasn't diagnosed back in the 70s either. So when I when I went to college the first time in the early 80s, it was it was a disaster. It wasn't really my GPA, wasn't it? It was just I was totally disorganized. It was completely overwhelming, and I completely stressed out. And I had a job as a student assistant at the university, and I just I'm not one of those students that's fortunate enough that can go to school and and work at the same time, and so it became a disaster. So. Honestly, it wasn't really until grad school, which was just in, well, okay, I got diagnosed with ADHD when I went back to college as an undergrad, and that was in 2007 of all, of all dates. I mean, you know, basically 50 years later, and that was when I, they found out I had ADHD. Well, that was part of the story, but they didn't really find the autism till I was in grad school, and I kept having problems, and so I was already seeing a therapist for my 
uh, ADHD, and she suggested seeing a psychologist to give me some tests and stuff to see if I had autism because she suspected that might be the case. So, yeah, for me, autism didn't really – my autistic life, well, began in, in the 60s, but, but officially diagnosed, I mean, literally in, I think, 2017, 2017 maybe. So very recently, very, very recently. So I've been trying to play catch-up, you know, because it, it makes things so much more – I understand myself so much better now than I ever have because I can put the pieces that were missing, you know, and it's funny because the, the autism symbol is, is always a piece of a puzzle, right? So it's, it's interesting to see that, yeah, I can see how that works because now I can figure out my own puzzle. Since 2017, you've worked as an instructional designer, which allows you to oversee and work with creative aspects of design and development. How do you see being autistic um, has helped you in any way of being good at what you do? Well, the good news is is that <laughs> I actually kind of figured out again when I was in college that I don't know everything. <laughs> and because I don't know everything, there's things that I'm good at, there's things that I'm really good at, and there's things that I am terrible at. And I, I realized and and that when I was working on solo projects in college, I did really well. But when I worked on group projects in college, it actually seemed to work out better because there were input from multiple sources. And it's the same thing with, with being an instructional designer. You know, first of all, instructional design is, is, is very often a solo operation, right? I mean, you work with people like subject matter experts and, and the client, but, but the actual building of the of the instructional materials is is often a solo project um so you have that if you're if you're somebody who is into isolation which i do tend to be it's it's incredible because you can just close your door put your headphones on and (laughs) nobody bothers you and you can just work away where it gets interesting is when it's a larger project and again you know falling back on school this this was also the same at college when you're in that group environment, you have a whole different set of rules to play by, right? Because, you know, as you well know, being, being self-employed, when you, when you work on your own, you're your own boss. You make the rules. You decide how and when you want to do stuff. When you're in a group, it's, it's not like that, right? I mean, people are depending on you to have certain things done by a certain period of time. I think we all know what a Gantt chart is, right? So <laughs> we have these deadlines and things. And it's... It, but from a, from an instructional, from a creative director standpoint, it, it's very interesting because again, it kind of puts me in charge, and you know, a lot of times it's hard to see the big picture. I, and I think that's true with a lot of, of people with autism. They they can see the minute detail in things, but I think sometimes they have trouble seeing the the vast picture. And with when you're a creative director and you're overseeing the different aspects of a project, it's basically like being a project manager. It, it can often get overwhelming. And one of the things that I have found is by keeping, and this almost seems contrary, but keeping the doors of communication open. That That's, the, you know, if you're not sure what somebody's doing, check in with them, you know, and, and if they, and tell them, you know, I always tell my teams, look, if you think I'm going off course from what we've set up, please let me know because that helps guide us and certainly me, you know, to keep 
keep on track because I, 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 one of the things about autism and ADHD is you can go, you can run multiple channels simultaneously. And the thing is, a lot of times you don't have control over those individual channels. So you might be talking about one thing and the next thing you know, you're on a completely different subject. So that's, that's, I think, what makes being an instructional designer unique is there's so much variety. You know, it could be a really finite, tiny little project, or it could be a major project where you've got multiple uh, interests involved and everybody's working together to create the end product. You, um, initially, you got your Master's of Science in Instructional Design and Technology uh, from Emporia State University. Why did you initially decide to you know, get your master's in this field? <laughs> Believe it or not, it wasn't, my, it wasn't my first choice. In fact, honestly, I didn't even know what an instructional designer was. Uh, one of my professors, I was talking to one of my professors uh, who, who in, when I was an undergrad, and I said, you know, I've actually considered getting going on to grad school and, and getting my master's degree. And he goes, really? Yeah. So we like talked back and forth. And he finally said, he goes, have you ever thought about being an instructional designer? And I said, well, what's, what's an instructional designer, right? And he said, well, an instructional designer is somebody who kind of develops instructional materials for businesses and or colleges or schools you know it could be k through 12 or you know it could be postdoctoral and he says you know but there's a lot more to it than that you know there's the learning theories there is the research you know not all instructional designers build materials some of them are total researchers although personally i suspect that those are all educational doctors and phds <laughs> I, I don't know that very many masters of science students or master of arts for that matter you know, do a lot of research, but nevertheless, the avenues are there to, to go into that section. And so I, I did my own research after we talked, you know, cause I was still kind of skeptical. And the more I read, I thought, you know, this would be an actually pretty interesting field because one of the things that I found interesting, and this is again, personal where it came out of when I was in school, grade school and junior high and high school was that when you don't learn like everybody else, you feel totally left out, right? You're, you're, you're completely off. And after a while, the, the, in the old days, the teachers would just ignore you, right? They would just, you know, whatever, don't cause problems and just whatever. I used to get past grade to grade because of that, right? I mean, I could get D's and F's and I would still find myself in the next grade level. And th this was back in the 70s. I mean, you know, people just say, oh, well, schools are dead today. No, schools were, you know, had problems back in the 60s and 70s too. So, but my point is, is that I realized that maybe as an instructional designer, I might be able to help shape curriculums or instructional materials for people on the spectrum. Uh, and, and I think that was one of the things that, that made me really, really want to pursue it. And so there, here I am. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know where my life would be without creating new ideas, new projects. It's, it's pretty essential for my existence, you know, projects and ideas that I really believe in. And creativity for you just, I don't think, is at work as you have, at, have an interest in acting and playing the piano. Would you say that creativity is, like, how important is that in a driving force in your life? I, I think it's a very important driving force. In fact, I find myself irritable if I don't, if I'm not creative at some point. Now, it doesn't have to be an everyday, all the time thing, but I, I haven't 
I haven't touched my keyboard since since I was in grad school, not because I haven't wanted to, or I really have wanted to, but it's it's dying of old. It's an electric keyboard, and it's dying of old age. It goes back to like the 90s and has like a million hours of play on it. So it's like it really needs to be re- retired, right? Although there are some sounds in it that I really like. But yeah, so I mean, it's just a case of you know, saving up the $3,000 to go buy another keyboard. And unfortunately, that's not at the top of the list. But as far as creativity in general, yeah, it, it is extremely important. Um, acting, I, I found that uh, acting is kind of a release for me, right? And I know that, that we'll be talking about that a little bit more detail down the road. But so I don't really want to jump ahead. But yeah, acting is, is, is a way of expression without... Being having to be yourself, if if you can do it, and I'm going to stop there on that because, like I said, I don't want to jump ahead. But yeah, so definitely creativity is very important. I think, uh, and sometimes creativity can manifest itself in ways like writing. I, I get into writing. I've got I've got a, a uh, I've always one of my areas of obsession since I was in high school has been. Um, has been child labor, specifically, specifically uh, in the coal mines of Pennsylvania or and and Virginia, you know, on the East Coast, and I, I became obsessed with this, like when I was in high school, and just I've never really gotten it out of my system, right? And so one day I was sitting and I was I just as in fact I was I think I was still in grad school, and this idea popped in my head. You know, it would make a really cool miniseries if you could create a a series a miniseries dealing around the life of a child who is works in a coal mine right and his progression through life you know his trials and tribulations and things like that and and you could have all these mini story arcs going on and so i actually sat down and i wrote this whole big synopsis and i went back to some of the lewis hine pictures i don't know if you're familiar with lewis hine he was a famous uh, i think they call him a photo sociologist right and he was like one of the first that documented all these child labor things uh at the turn of the, of the 20th century and anyway, so his paintings are all in the National Archives, and, and they're really, really good, and they tell a very vibrant story. But So I went back, and I pulled some of those pictures, right, to, to get an idea of what it must be like living in those kind of conditions. I don't always think that it was horrendous as what modern society says, but on the flip side of the coin, it certainly had its down moments. So, yeah, so there's that kind of creativity. You got. You were mentioning about acting, you know, and you got involved in acting in, in your thirties. Um, so I'm wondering, for autistics listening that may want to get into acting, do you have any advice on how they can go about doing that? Yeah, don't. <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. Actually, yeah, actually, I, I do. I I was. I am very, in a lot of ways, very introverted and very antisocial, and I think. My, I think my desires to want to act goes all the way back to when I was really little. Um, I did. I used to sing in choir when I was in, in junior high school, and I had a wonderful, wonderful music teacher. And because of that, you know, we start we did like a musical every year, or, or we did a pageant of some sort. And but that was that was the extent of up up until my thirties. And when I, I lived in Nevada for a while, up in Reno, and 
a friend of mine introduced me to this acting instructor because I said, yeah, you know, I said it'd really be cool to get into acting. And she said, well, you ought to check out this guy, Joe G and Papa. And she says he's he's really really good. He he's he's works with all kinds of people and he's very uplifting. And I thought, okay. So I looked him up and I studied with him for like uh, probably two maybe two and a half years. He introduced me to a casting director who had moved up from Los Angeles because she was just tired of the Los Angeles scene. And and we got to be pretty good friends. And the next thing I know, I was auditioning. And so my advice really, I mean, again, this is based off my own experiences. If, if I was somebody who had never been into acting, but I felt I had the urge to want to do it and want to, pers- to really pursue it, uh, I would probably consult with an acting instructor of some sort. And, it, and, it, and it, you know, like with autism where you have, you know, you're, you're a personal coach, right? You're a personal autism coach, mm-hmm. right? And you help people bring out the best in themselves. And that's the way a good acting instructor will do. They're not critical. They appreciate you for who you are. And they will, they will find and hone your talents. I have realized that, well, I, I, again, I, I don't want to get out myself, but um, that would be my number one advice is is find a good acting instructor or somebody who can encourage you that understands the business, whether it's theater, which is completely different than television and motion picture, or, or if you want to do like voiceover, that's completely different too. But usually there are instructors that specialize in the different areas. Now, most cities, unless you live in like New York or Los Angeles or you know, Chicago or one of the metro areas, most cities will probably tend to have much more focus on theater than with actual motion picture. But having said that, a lot of college programs have radio, television, and film programs within their within their campuses. And those people, a lot of times, are looking for extra students to be actors and actresses in their student projects. So that's always something, if you're in college, you can always check those departments out to see if they have anything. You were in an independent film called Garage Sale. What was, what was this experience uh, like for you being, being in this movie? How did that come about? Garage Sale, yeah. Um, <laughs> Garage Sale was one of those things where I talked about the casting director. Well, she was the one that had come across this movie. And the, the, it was a husband and wife team who decided to create it. They owned a production company in San Jose that, that San Jose, California that dealt with, and I'm assuming probably it may still, uh, deals with industrial films. And it, for those of you who don't know, industrial films are like instructional design videos, okay, for industry. So they'll have actors, you know, maybe working on a set where, okay, this is the John Hopkins refinery and, you know, these are the safety protocols you need to follow. They decided, okay, out of the clear blue sky that they were going to do a, just a normal everyday movie. So they came up with this garage sale concept. And there are other movies named Garage Sale. This was probably, I think, either the first or the second one named Garage Sale. But it's basically about a family who's down on their luck and they need to sell things because the, the, uh, the, the, the breadwinner of the family, for lack of a better term, lost his job. And so it's about all the wacky people that go to garage sales. So they, I auditioned and it just so happened that this husband and wife team 
had gone to Kansas, uh, University of Kansas. And so when they found out I was originally from Kansas, they said, oh my gosh, that's so cool. And we talked. And so the next thing I know, they're offering me this part of the Thin Man, uh, which was like a day player role. I think it paid like $350 for like 30 minutes worth of work. But it was awesome, right? I was there for like seven hours because nothing ever goes right on a movie set. <laughs> so it was, it was, from that aspect, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. It was also, and this was one of the reasons that I was laughing when you first asked me this question, it was also one of the most terrifying experiences. Um, it was very, very, very overwhelming. When, when you get on set, if you've never been on a set before, there's just so much stuff going on. Even in a small production, there's a lot of stuff going on. And there's makeup and there's costuming. And fortunately, I didn't really have to do costumes. I pretty much wore what I had. But there was all the makeup and the reviewing of the scripts and the camera people. They had to mic you up. They ran two different mics, right? So you had a, one of those wireless mics tucked in your belt and then tucked in your shirt it was, was a hidden mic so that was your primary mic and then of course they did an overhead mic and <laughs> it was it was very overwhelming and i think i didn't have a meltdown but it just took me away right i was just so consumed by all the coolness and and the anxiety simultaneously and i think that it caused me to lose myself a little bit well, okay, maybe a little bit more than a little bit, but it was fun. It was it was definitely definitely an experience I would do again in a heartbeat. We initially connected on LinkedIn maybe maybe a month or two ago. I can't remember. Time goes so fast it seems. It does. <laughs> and, and you posed what I thought was a really um, interesting rhetorical question regarding acting um, and autistics that I uh, hope you'll now answer for me. And you said. How can I act as, as, for example, the thin man in the garage sale when I'm trying to act quote-unquote normal? Can you explain um, what you meant by that question? And now can you answer your own question for me? <laughs> well, it was rhetorical, you know. And, and as Troy on your other show pointed out, you know, he was an actor, is an actor, mm. and doesn't seem to have any problem with it. So I have to kind of back that statement off a little bit. Nevertheless, I do think that there's a lot, I think with autistics in general, including myself, and, and maybe you as well, when you were younger, right, we didn't, we try to conform to society, right? We, we try to, to act the way that everybody else does. We try to not be different. I mean, at least this is the way it used to be. Uh, and I think probably still is to some extent. And because of that, we don't think about being ourselves, right? We're, we're always molded into something. And, and I'll be honest, I, I learned social skills by watching tons of television. The funny part is, is I didn't watch age-appropriate television when I was younger. So I was, the my social skills were adult when I was like 10. <laughs> I mean, I was acting like an adult when I was 10 because this is, you know, well, well, you know, John Wayne did it that way. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, and Bill Shatner, we got, we, we got to do Bill Shatner, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, this is the way Bill Shatner acts or, you know, and, and so, yeah, I, that's how I learned social skills. And the, the bad thing about that is, is that I was never myself, right? That was my normal. Well, then of course, as I got older and 
didn't really watch so much more TV. I did start watching my peers a little bit and trying to emulate their behavior, both good and bad in some instances. And because of that, you know, I, I never felt like I was myself, right? I can't hand flap in public, right? <laughs> you know? I mean, we can hand flap in our house. Nobody thinks anything about it. We can rock back and forth repetitively. Nobody thinks about it. But if you do this in public, even though it's yourself, even though you're being yourself, the, the mores of society won't, you know, they, they still have an, a somewhat of an intolerance, I think. You know, they just think, and, and, and we don't really want to, we really want to feel different. So because of that, how can you be something else when you're trying to act the way everybody thinks you're supposed to act, right? And it comes back to that rhetorical question. And I think to answer that, I think you have to learn to let yourself or your model of yourself go, right? Because when you're acting, you take on another character, okay? So like in garage sale, my problem came up. I, I First of all, I didn't have a large script to work with, right? Because this was a small part. So it didn't have a lot of, it didn't have a lot of detail to it. So unlike main characters where you've got, you know, you can build an entire life around a main character. This was not the case with this character. And because I was a novice, I didn't understand that even when you have a small script line, you can still create whatever character you want. And if the director doesn't like it, he'll say, hey, can you do it this way, right? Uh, so I didn't know that at the time. And that's why I think that it's it's extremely difficult to act when you're trying to be normal. You've, you've got to learn to let your, your preconceived notion of what it's like to be normal go. You have to get rid of it. And then you have to absorb – uh, you have to absorb in the character that you're supposed to play. And the thing is, if it's well-defined, and Troy touched on this too a little bit, if the director defines it well, it's easy to do, right? But if you have to think of it from scratch, when you don't have a huge script to follow that you know has tons of detail on this character, it's like, okay, but I'm a blank slate now, right? So Because I've removed my own self, and I obviously can't be my autistic self, so who then am I supposed to be? All I have are a few words, and those words, and again, this is from a novice perspective, right? Those words don't really give me enough to build on. The reality is, though, and, and I think veteran actors will tell you, uh, whether they be neurotypicals or, or on the spectrum, I, I think veteran actors will tell you, but that's where the art of acting comes from, right? If you don't have that information, you make that information. Draw on a little bit of Bill Shatner or draw on Patrick Stewart or draw on John Wayne. You know, Take little elements of those people and combine them to create your own unique character. Mm-hmm. Now... For autistics out there that are listening to this interview that may want to get into acting or are already acting, what advice would you have for them um, how they could be good or as an actor or improve as an actor? I I think, uh, depending on where they're at on the spectrum, I think that the best thing to do is to never stop, right? It, it's a constantly improving craft, and it's, it's, like, it, it's like being a musician is the same way, right? The more you practice, the better you get. And, and if, you, if you want to do screen and television, okay, I, I would recommend you know, taking your iPhone and, and propping it up somewhere and, and practicing in front of that iPhone constantly, Right. Even if you're ad libbing stuff, even if you're just, you know, even if because this is one of the things that really helped me when I was in, in 
taking acting classes was being able to see how my movements occur and then watching them back and having an instructor sit with me and say, okay, that is a perfect example of being angry, but we're not really angry in this scene, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, we all know that, well, you know, you're closed to ideas when you cross your arms across your chest, right? Or you're mad when your hands are on your hips, you know? I mean, we've, we've all learned that, especially being on the spectrum when you go through those little cards with your, with your you know, therapist and, or your parents, you know, and they're showing you when you're a little kid, okay, what, what expression is this face showing? <laughs> yeah, so... I, I would say never stop practicing. Never stop practicing. You can never be too practiced. I guess that's just kind of the best. That's the way to get better at anything. Just, just, just keep at it. I think it. so. I think so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well, Dennis, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for making time for me today. Not a problem. I really enjoyed being here, and I'd be happy to come back anytime. Thanks so much to Dennis for this conversation. If you're interested uh, to learn how Autism Personal Coach can help you beyond this podcast, you can find a link to book a free call to learn how we can help to coach you to reduce your daily overwhelm and get the things that you need and want in your life. So book a Zoom call with me today. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We'd also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review, as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. On next week's episode of Autism Stories, we will have a conversation with Wanda Deschamps. Until then, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.